0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. So stop me if you've heard this one before. Many of you have, but some people haven't, and it's great, okay? And it's very timely, okay? So there's an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. They really want to get into the Olympics, okay? But the problem is they don't have any tickets and there's this huge barricade around the whole Olympic stadium and everything and they can't get in. So they're just really, they're scheming, they're they're figuring out what's going on and the Englishman sees, you know, there's the the poles that they erected the fence around. So he goes and he grabs one, he walks up to the front row and he says, Hadley Row, England pole vaulting. they're like, oh yeah, absolutely, come on in. So the Scotsman goes, Aye, that's a good idea. And so he looks around and he finds a manhole cover. You know, they were kind of putting in all this new sewage. He finds this manhole cover. He picks it up. He walks up and he says, Magenis, Scotland, discus. And they're like, Yep, yeah, go on in, go on in. And uh, old, old, old O'Neill, he's there and he's just looking around. And he says, "Ah, that's not a good idea as well. And so he looks around. He finds a bunch of barbed wire just sitting there. It's just kind of like this group of barbed wire. And he picks it up and he walks up to the front row, the, the door and he says, O'Neill, Ireland, fencing. All jokes that I tell have a purpose. Um, that's part of the larger, the larger illustration of what we're doing. Um, I really wanted this to be true. Uh, I found something this week that said, oh yeah, the word humor and the word humility come from the same core uh, Latin term, and that's not true. Unfortunately, the word humor comes from the word humere, which is where we get humid and it means liquid because back in the day, they thought there's these four essential liquids inside of you Um, that if you can balance those liquids, you're a good person. If you have too much bile, you're not a good person. So that's where we get the word humor. Doesn't make any sense. But the word humility and the word humanity do come from the same term, which is humus. And humus means the ground and the earth. And I love that there is a parallel. There's something about good, I think good humor makes us more human. It grounds us. And especially those good self-deprecating jokes. I really wanted to tell a joke about the English but we're not going to do that. We'll tell jokes about the Irish because I can kind of take it upon myself. And we, you know, those. I think the best jokes, especially when it's about culture, or whatever, it makes us laugh a little bit about ourselves. When we put down our guard. We're a little bit more honest. That you know, maybe we don't have it all together, and maybe we're not like you know God's gift to the earth or whatever it might be. And I and I just love that. I love that you know humor, humility, um, and humanity all kind of have this common starting point. So we're in a series called, and the thing after that, which that does say, you just can't read it. Um, And this series is, what what happens after the moment of salvation? When we are baptized, when we kind of pledge allegiance to Jesus as our king, do we sit and twiddle our thumbs for the next 30 or 40 years until we die, and then we get to go to heaven? Or is there something happening in the interim that is really important that we pay attention to? That the, the, the spirit of Jesus is doing something within us, forming us, shaping us to look more like him day by day? And does that actually begin to speak to what we're here to do, how we are to be in the world, and especially how we uh, approach the moral questions of the day? And so uh, we're, we're kind of going through um, this list that Paul gives us in Colossians 3, looking at these different virtues, that virtue is a formation of character, that when we look at Jesus, this is what Jesus looks like. And then secondly, as we allow the spirit of Jesus to do something in us, we become more like him day by day. And that's what we call virtue. And that virtue actually sets us up better to understand uh, how to make moral decisions. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into this one today about humility. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you're with us. that you are for us, you are not against us. Holy Spirit, would you go ahead of us now and lay a foundation of humility for us to step into, that we can come before you with honesty and with vulnerability. that even as we listen to you this morning, we begin to open up our own stories, that you would show us what you see there so we can see ourselves through your eyes, that there would be no more self-deception, there would be no more cultural deception, but it would just be us before you. God, I pray that you would create a safe place for us to be that honest with ourselves, that we're not being found out that we're not being condemned, but we are being invited to step into new life in you. So may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. We've been framing this series uh, kind of these larger cultural narratives that I think there's a moral crisis happening today and Many of us maybe grew up thinking like, oh, the church, we've got it together. We're morally superior and it's the world or it's culture. That's the place of like immorality. But I think in actuality, it's recognizing there's a moral crisis all throughout our culture, whether it's in the church or whether it's in our nation. And, and part of the problem is because we're actually hyper-moral. We're not immoral. We're hyper-moral. We have these, this overwhelming need and pressure to have a, an opinion and a position on every single thing, and that so quickly puts it about behavior modification and buying into the same uh, agreed upon tenets so that we can be part of a certain team just so that we can survive. And many of us feel kind of crushed by the legalism that that, that whole system entails, whether it's legalism within the church or it's legalism within our culture today. And I think you know, as I've kind of examined this and kind of listened to all of these different moral arguments within our society, I, I hear these questions beneath the questions that a lot of times what we're being asked, or what is your position on this, or how do you feel about that, or what do you think about this thing that happened in the news, there's these deeper underlying questions that aren't really being answered that people are making an attempt at. I think one of the dominant questions being asked today is what does it mean for me to be true to myself? We hear that a lot, be true to yourself, to thine own self be true. Um, but as, we're gonna do a lot of philosophy today, I and mean, that's my mega, mega brain, is that what we said? <laughs> we, we all love philosophy, we all love theology, that's the goal of this church. But uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Christian existentialist in the 18th century said, you know, okay, to thine own self be true, but what is a self? Like which self are you being true to? The one that you felt like when you woke up today? the one that you've been told by your surrounding culture, the one that you've manufactured to create. Like, what do we mean when we say that? If you ever really wanna get bummed out, go and read The Existentialists. They're (laughs) so depressing and it's great because they will make you question, why do we hold these normally uh, assumed little phrases that kind of are trying to make sense of the world? So what does it mean for me to be true to myself? The deeper question is, what is my self? I think what we're recognizing now in, a, I would say, relatively solidly post-Christian society um, is that whenever there's the vacuum of the one story that kind of holds together our culture that tells us who we are, we start finding all of these competing narratives that are trying to fill that void. And we need story in order to give us kind of a moral vision for how we are to behave and how we are to live in the world. Um, and a lot of those stories are currently failing us about who we are, what it means to be a human being, how we're called to be a society, how we're called to relate other people. And this is gonna be a little bit of an oversimplification. I think it is a bit more complex than that, but I see that there's almost like these two halves of what it means to be a human being that we're always jockeying back and forth in position. Because I believe that the Christian vision of human identity holds a creative tension between being the image of God and being broken creatures, okay? So I think the truly Christian vision holds these two things in a creative tension with one another. So a little bit of a, 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 a history lesson for you. This country, um, at, at, I, will, I, I will always hesitate to say the United States is a Christian nation. I think it's a net positive that we're no longer a Christian nation because now maybe we can start being Christians again. That's a whole other thing. But there was a lot of Christianity present in the foundation of this, this country. And a lot of the early you know, the early uh, Europeans coming over here, kind of establishing their colonies and whatnot, were Puritans. And, and there's, a, there's a strain of Christianity that uh, has this idea of original sin, okay? This is something that was developed by St. Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century. Um, and what, what kind of happens with original sin is this idea that human beings are fundamentally evil and broken and there's nothing good about them and they, we need a savior, okay? So there's a big argument in the fourth century between uh, Pelagius and St. Augustine, and they're like, are people fundamentally good? Are people fundamentally evil? And then people just took that and ran with it. So Puritanism really started there. People are fundamentally evil, broken, in need of a savior. Many of you, you're probably raised in a church, but so that's kind of the underlying feature. Um, but as Christianity developed in our country, Um, A couple centuries later, we find kind of the first movement of liberalism. It's quite different than the liberalism that we know today, but in this movement, there's this idea of kind of original blessing or original goodness, that people are basically good, and there was varying degrees of recognizing where there might be brokenness or evil in people. And I think these two dominant narratives have shaped American culture, where you can actually remove God from it, and those things still operate. And what we tend to see, again, vast oversimplification, is that conservatism in our country is built on the foundation that people are fundamentally evil, and if we can make good people, then we make a good society, it's about individuals. And liberalism, overarching, is people are fundamentally good, and if we create a good society, then that will create good people. And that's the major problems that we see happening in our society today. So I just solved the entire you know, American political landscape. You're welcome. Um, and it's very natural for us to choose one of those ways of seeing the world and seeing humanity over the other. You know, one of the things that I think has been very revelatory to me is to say, with those two visions of what it means to be a human being, what does it look like to create uh, a judicial system? Like how we define justice, how we do prisons. I was reading an article this week about the gross failure that the war on drugs has been in our country because it's predominantly, um you know, oppressed uh, uh, poorer cultures, uh, black and brown people. Like, we we said, like, very minor drug charges have ruined people's lives. But if we believe that people are fundamentally evil, well, that's what we do, right? But on the other side of it, if we believe people are fundamentally good, we don't give full credence um, to the need for a real sense of justice. And that was actually what happened in the early part of the 20th century, that kind of liberalism was the dominant uh, you know, view in culture and in the church in the like, late 19th century, early 20th century. And then Hitler came along and everybody just kind of appeased him. Like, oh, he's, he's quirky, he's a painter, uh, kind of weird guy, but whatever. And they just kind of kept letting him do his thing. And then World War II happened because we did not take seriously enough the place of evil and the place of sin in the human heart. But I think if we're very carefully reading scripture and we're looking at church history, we begin to realize, oh my goodness, like Christianity has this amazingly complex vision of holding those two elements together. That we are made in the image of God. We are the children of God. There's a fundamental goodness to what it means to be a human being, but we are also broken. We are also capable of tremendous evil. And we have to hold those things in tension. We can't choose one story over the other or else we find ourselves misaligned. And ultimately, we do not recognize uh, truly our need for a savior. And so I think that that's what brings me to the virtue that we're looking at today in humility. And I was really contemplating, like, okay, so how do we define humility? Because I think, you know, as, as many of these virtues, we find this kind of false versions of these, there's counterfeits and there's vices that go with them. And this is really, this, I found this tremendously helpful, I think. Humility is our ability to tell ourselves and others the truth about who we really are. Now, I had never really considered it until preparing for this message that humility and truth are intimately connected. Um, Because it really becomes about our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to other people, and our relationship to God that's going to give us an understanding of what humility is. And I think what I've recognized in the church so often, again, if we have this, like, I'm fundamentally broken evil, um, and there's no good in me, or I'm fundamentally God's gift to the world, and and everything I do is a blessing, and, and I'm, you know, kind of abdicated from all evil, that that leads us into these counterfeits of what we're talking about with humility. There's a sense of false humility in the church, right? And false humility is a sense of my fundamental brokenness and I have no power. I have nothing good to offer the world. We find this a lot kind of in like, you know, hyper-Calvinist, neo-reformed places, like woe is me, self-flagellation, like here I am. You know, do you guys remember that thing in, um, what's that movie with Tom Hanks, Da Vinci Code? Yeah. And... Uh, Your old vision, he's got, like, that thing. It's just, like, oh, just, like, that kind of, like, we just love to beat ourselves up because we're so broken, and maybe if we can grovel, God will pay enough attention to us, right? Like, that kind of false humility where we kind of take ourselves out of the game and we don't recognize, we can't, like, own the fact that we're his children and that he loves us and he just, he's so devoted to us. Um, But then on the other side, there's this sense of pride. And pride is this kind of, illusion that I have it all together and that I don't need a savior. There's a lot of self-talk in pride. Now, a lot of times we think of pride as someone being very like boisterous and performative and like always kind of putting forth their skills and their abilities to prove why they're someone that you should listen to. But one of the things I've recognized in myself that pride is just it's another self-deception where maybe I'm telling myself stories about myself in order to prevent myself from having to deal with the reality of my own life. So it may not be that I'm like boisterous and proud and like kind of convincing everybody else of something. It's that I'm kind of trying to convince myself of it. And how do, how do I, this is like a personal, how do I know when I've been called out in pride is when humility and humiliation are basically the same word. And I find myself humiliated because I've been found out. Because the story that I've kept telling myself about myself is interrupted by somebody else finding me out. And I think that's the part where truth comes into it. When I'm self-deceiving, either in that false humility, like I'm, it's, it's woe is me, like I'm no good, or it's pride, it's like look at me and how great and how grand I am. These stories that I keep telling myself, it's still very self-obsessed. And that's why I see these things as counterfeits. And we find this now in our, in our culture today, that we have this idea of being a self-made man or a self-made woman. I think that's very much woven into the fabric of American society. And what it means is I get to decide who I am. Or as old Uncle Stanley Howard says, the American story is that you have no story until you were told that you have no story except for the story that you chose, which is very confusing. Which in and of itself is a story, right? Like you are a self-made man, you're a self-made woman. Like you are not, like you get, you get the right to determine who you are, um, what you do, you define yourself. And what we're finding now is we're kind of moving past postmodernism into this new era. It's the internet has so wired us to work this way. Not only am I like passively participating in content that's put out in the world, and I, you know, kind of like postmodernism, like, here's a smorgasbord of ideas and philosophies. You just pick what's right for you. Now you're the author of your own reality, okay? You get to decide what gets to be part of your re- reality and what doesn't get to be part of your reality. Um, so let me make this more tangible. How many of you are Taylor Swift fans? Okay, I'm gonna dog on Taylor Swift yeah. for a moment. Yeah. For a yes. moment. So She's good. put out a song with Big Red Machine and it's great. It so good. How many of you are Kanye OS fans? Hey. Hey. Yeah. Two of you, okay. Yeah. I don't know if you wanna admit that in public, but oh, we will. don't doubt. <laughs> Is the album ever gonna come out? It will, August 6th. <laughs> so a couple years ago, Kanye puts out an album. He has a, a line that he considers funny that's about Taylor Swift that was not hoof, shall we say. <laughs> and so Taylor Swift, Uh, puts out a statement, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you would do that, and you can say that to me, and y'all know the history between these two that goes back to, like, Kanye interrupting Tay-Tay, tay -tay. And and so it's this whole thing, like, oh my gosh, he's, like, taking advantage of Taylor Swift and blah, 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 and then all these recordings get put out by whomever, Whoever that is, one of the Kardashians, whichever one. It's Kim, okay. This recording is going to be so great. I'm apologizing to everybody who's online right now because... (laughs) This is a ridiculous story. Um, in actuality, he had called Taylor Swift. He said, I'm going to do this. She said, ha, 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 that's so funny. Yeah, let's do it. And so she, it kind of went back and forth and nobody knows what the truth was. Taylor Swift puts out this big thing, like I never intended lie. And the very last line of it, she said, I never asked to be a part of this narrative, so this is where I'm choosing out. That is post-postmodernism. That's what I'm talking about. I do not want to accept the reality that's around me, I do not want to be held accountable to being a human being. And I can actually engineer, I can close out the tabs or I can unfollow in order to prevent myself from having to engage with the reality of my own life. That's what we're really talking about here. So we have this idea of being a self-made man, a self-made woman, where we are the authors of our own realities um, and we're putting ourselves in the position of God. But I think true humility is to see ourselves through the eyes of God. And this is what Kierkegaard tells us. Like, how, how can you know yourself unless you have someone to bounce that selfhood through? This is why marriage is so important because marriage becomes at least one way in which you're bouncing your selfhood through another self and seeing what comes back. All y'all that are married you know that's the, like, the greatest path to humility possible, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right. But Kierkegaard says, you know, another human being's perspective of you is still kind of limited because they're working it out, too. So we need a self that's outside of the self that can really give us a clear vision of who we are. And that's the place for God. And it's not self-condemnation. Like, sometimes we only see our junk. We see our despicable parts, and that's when we go, woe is me, like I'm fundamentally broken and evil. Like, that's false humility. And sometimes we only see our gifts and our image of godness. And there's kind of this self-conceit. But how do we see ourselves through the eyes of God in an honest way where we see the full spectrum of what it means to be a human being? For me to see myself in the full spectrum of what it means to be Ryan, that I have all these great and incredible gifts. I have the DNA of, of the image of God in me, but I also have a lot of brokenness. I have a lot of stuff. And how do I hold all of that together? And instead of making it about me, instead of navel-gazing and saying, "Whoa, is me, or oh my gosh, I'm the best gift, How do I actually turn my eyes towards God and to say, what do I do with all this? All this experience of being a human being. And so humility requires actually a tremendous amount of courage to be honest with ourselves, to tell ourselves the truth. And I think as with all the virtues, The virtues are both informed by what God is really like, but we also learn the virtues to discover what God is like. It's kind of this like reciprocating relationship between virtue and the character of God. And I think humility is central to us understanding what God is ultimately like. We look to God to see what humility uh, truly looks like in its fullness, specifically the God revealed in Jesus. And it's interesting. In the conversations about virtue, going all the way back to the classical period in Greece and in Rome, no one in the ancient world valued humility as a virtue. In the Greek world, in the Roman world, they're like, why, why would you be humble? Like, it's actually virtuous to be prideful because you want to lay your claim to who you are and what you've accomplished, and, and you need to prove that to other people. Um, it was Christianity introducing the idea of humility as a virtue that was totally revolutionary to the whole conversation about virtue. Nobody understood that. Nobody seemed seemed to think that this was a real value because the value was in being strong and being dominant and kind of asserting your rightness in, in terms of colonizing other people and informing them that they're wrong and you're right and your culture is the best culture. And I think we're still shaped by that that Greek vision of virtue. Even within the Christian household, many of us are still shaped by that. Look at the leaders that we look towards. We cheer on prideful and strong leaders. That's what we we equate. Literally, there's been a lot of research done. We equate people who are boisterous and prideful as being strong and capable leaders. And we don't value humility. We see humility as a weakness. You don't admit to mistakes. You don't admit that you're in process. You don't admit that maybe you don't know something. Because we're still more shaped by the Greeks. And I think this is very true within the Christian household. I think this is the moral crisis that we have. We have a gross lack of humility today. Because essentially we believe God is like us. And so we just kind of amplify all of our character. We, and we put that on God. He's like us, just bigger. You know, he just has a bigger stick than we do. He just says he's just more strong and more awesome and more capable than we are. But then we come to a passage like this. This is Philippians chapter two. And, you know, this is, for me, this is like one of like, this is a, we should memorize this passage and you should read like the rest of the Bible through Philippians chapter two because I think this is so key. This is one of the Christ hymns that we find in the New Testament. And what Paul is doing is he's tying together the way that we're called to treat one another, the way we posture ourselves to the world, and he's kind of taking it to this new place of saying, this is what God is really like, okay? And I, and I love that it, just, it all, just the conversation automatically gets like huge and cosmic. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And this this is the bit here, this is the turnaround. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Really quick, why is that really hard? Because that requires you to trust that somebody else will take care of your needs. Now that's scary. Now, a lot of us, uh, we will put ourselves in a humble position that we will not look to our own interests, but we'll look to the interests of other people, but then that doesn't come back to us. That's why we tend to settle back into transactional relationship. Like, I will take care of your needs if you take care of mine first. I'll give you 50 cc's of love, and you give me 50 cc's of love back. And it's like we're, we're holding each other at arm's length and we're just kind of eking out what we can in relationship because we don't trust that someone's really gonna take care of our needs. So we're still kind of like self-preservation mindset. you know. And this, this like radical call to humility is, I am going to let go of the need to fulfill my own needs and I'm gonna trust when I enter into loving community that even as I'm all out unconditionally looking to meet your needs, that you're going to do the same for me because we have this agreement. We have this one spirit that's tying us together. We have this one Lord um, under whom we pledge allegiance. And so in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So everything he just said, he's like, you wanna know how Jesus thinks? This is how Jesus thinks. And this is the poem. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That is what God is actually like. You know, I used to read this as thinking, like, Jesus made himself equal to us, right? But that's not what it says. It says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of the servant. So God, what God is really like is that God completely, like, emptied his God self and literally placed himself beneath us. He made himself less than us. Like, we're not servants. We're not slaves in this room. He made himself on that level, and he went even a level below that. He actually died. Like, he went to death. He went to Hades. Like, you can't get much lower than that. You can't be more self-emptying than that. And the crazy thing to me is to recognize this is not Jesus giving up his divinity in order to be with us. It is the evidence of Jesus' divinity that he would get do that for us. Yes. Right? I'll say it again, because I wrote it down. <laughs> and this is, some of you, you have been raised with this idea that Jesus was God, and God's way up there. God can't, God can't possibly be with you because you're so gross and icky, right? How many of you? Like, ooh, not me, obviously, Dad. You never taught us this, but like, God looks at you and he's just like, oh, like, ew, gross. You go So God was like so fed up with the world, you know, that he sent his son Jesus to fix it because Jesus just didn't have anything to do at the time. Um, So we have this idea like Jesus forsakes heaven, he forsakes his, his godness, he empties himself of being God to become a man, and then he does man things, and then he dies, and then he gets to be God again. Because God can't possibly be close to us. God's too high and mighty. So Jesus must have gotten rid of his godness in order to be on our level, or even be lower than us. But no, it is the evidence of Jesus's godness, of his divinity, that he would stoop so low, because that's what God is actually like. You know, God doesn't look at you, it's just like so disgusted that you're gross and you have sin cooties and he needs, he needs some weird intermediary because he's so holy he can't touch you. No, like god like he feels in his gut when he sees you and he's like oh, i cannot help but to be with you and that's the evidence of Jesus' divinity and we see this all throughout the life of jesus yes if the cross was the the culmination of the work that was like the ultimate like i was i was actually i had uh i had a, a beer with a friend this week who was not raised in the church doesn't know anything about christianity they're trying to talk to me about what i do what's the difference between being a pastor and a priest and all this and I said, denomination, they're like, what's that? I'm like, you're cute. <laughs> he goes, he goes <coughs> this is so great. He says, so there's Catholic and Christian and Judaism? I was like, he's like, so there's like two denominations? I'm like, no, there are 44,000 denominations. <laughs> <laughs> but the first question he asked me, of course, was, why do bad things happen to good people, right? This is what we call the Odyssey. Why do things, if God is in control, this kind of language, And I understand why he would ask that, because most of the Western world operates on this idea that God is large and in charge. Like, he's just, he's bigger than us. He's like a president, but more. He's like a king, but more. And he's powerful, and he's in control. And if there's bad things happening, then he must not be that in control, or he doesn't care, or whatever it is. And I said to this person, like, it's interesting to me that the central image, symbol in the Christian faith is a rabbi hanging on a cross outside the city gates. Like, when you and I, when we want to know what God is like, that's what we point to, you know? Like, we point to powerlessness. We point to self-emptying. We point to saying, this is what God is really like, that God so loved us that he would actually abandon everything else. He, like it says here, like, he did not take this to his own advantage and that God would co-suffer alongside of us And somehow that brings salvation. Somehow that brings the healing to the world. And how many of us in the Christian household, we've forgotten that like the central image of our faith has been abandoned. I had a friend that was part of a church one time and they refused to have any crosses in it. They're like, well, we don't go back to the cross. Like we just live in victory. I'm like, no, you're living in manifest destiny Americanism. Like that's not Christianity because we've missed the place of humility And we see this all throughout the life of Jesus culminating in the cross But everything Jesus did was humble. And this is one of my favorite stories of this in John 13, one through five. And I just love the way John writes because he automatically just like enters into this kind of, he'll say something and you're like, what? He says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. This is so good. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just... Selah, that one. Like, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and this bit, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew his origin, and he knew his destination. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going, and that gave him the context in the moment to be his fullest, most complete self, the truly human one, and the image of God incarnate. So what do you do when you have that kind of power, when you have that kind of authority? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, Jesus was constantly enacting these symbols, going, this is what God is like, this is what God is like, this is what and they could not wrap their heads around it. Because they were looking for the political leader who's going to come along with the big sword and lead the revolution and beat up the bad guys. They were looking for the religious leader who was going to come in and like bring order to everything and, and, and fix the world. And Jesus kept giving them these humble symbols of like, no, 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 this is what God is really like. This is what it looks like for me to be the Messiah. You see, I think humility is actually really disruptive to our status quo. We talked about last week with with kindness. You know, kindness ruptures niceness because niceness just kind of maintains the way things are. But humility disrupts a lot of the way that we think things are supposed to be, and it causes us to question, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about what it means to be a human being. By the way, a quick note. After last week, uh, we raised $6,285 for the Zebra Coalition, so well done, everyone. I hope that cost you something. So what are the fruits of humility? Like if we were to live this way, if we were to be truly humble people where we're telling ourselves and other people the truth about who we really are, how would that change the way that we live? I think humility blesses our human limitations as gifts to offer other people. I think this is really hard for us as prideful people to accept that my limitations are not a liability, but my limitations are a gift that I can offer other people. This is one of the things that my coach was helping me through last week when I started to kind of establish healthier boundaries of communication with all y'all. Like, don't text me if it's church related. Send it to me on Slack, and I'll get to it between nine and five, you know, Tuesday through Friday and on Sunday afternoons. He said, "Do you believe that the best gift that you have for your people is actually to like to offer them your weakness and your limitations, and for that to teach them more than any sermon possibly could? Let's give that a go. Let's try that. I don't know." Um, and I think that that's, like, such a beautiful pivot for us to recognize. Like, we're so afraid of our limitations as human beings, our, our incapabilities. Like, there's this need, this desire to be awesome, to have it all together, to tell the testimony. That's like, oh, yeah, one time I was this terrible person, then I met Jesus, and now I'm fine, you know? Just little smiles. Like, that's the kind of testimony that we're taught to give in the American church. But to, to recognize, like, oh, I can actually, by living a humble life, telling the truth of who I am, to other people, to myself, that those limitations become gifts because what I'm doing is I'm not pointing to myself, I'm pointing to the Savior. I'm pointing to Jesus consistently through the way that I live my life, and I'm giving other people the permission to do the same. Will we all let go of this need to perform and to succeed and to be awesome and to have it all together, and we can actually enter into intimate relationship with one another? And so humility gives us permission to say, I don't know which is maybe like the most freeing three words in the English language. Especially the way, as quickly as the world is moving today and how many moral questions are being thrown at us like every single week in the news and in our friend groups and in our family to be able to just say, I don't know. I don't know. Not in a way that I'm escaping my life, but I'm in process. I think humility repairs relationship. Like we see in this little bit of Philippians like, When we are humble and we consider others more more valuable than ourselves, and they do the same for, for us, it creates this, it moves us from codependence, which is kind of that transactional, like, I'll give you this and you give me that, to a healthy interdependence, where we're able to articulate our needs to one another without fear of condemnation, and we step deeper into taking care of each other. I think real humility leads to curiosity and constant discovery. We feel like we have to be experts all the time. Like we already have to be in the know. But humility gives us permission to say, I don't know, but I want to. And we begin to explore a little bit more. We're more curious. We begin to ask questions. We begin to allow people into our worlds and allow them to be curious about us. And it opens us up and helps us to grow. And then life becomes a constant discovery rather than it being just about holding on to one conclusion after the next. I think we're just so addicted to conclusions and answers because that's the stuff that we feel like is going to make us safe. But I think humility opens us up to constantly discovering and rediscovering who we really are, what it means to be a human being. And finally, humility is a deep trust that ultimately God is working for our good. And the spirit is working in ways that we can't comprehend over the course of our lives. So ultimately, humility is about trusting that God is God and that he's gonna do what he's gonna do. And that God tends to work a lot slower than you and I do. He's not in a rush. Because God's in the redemption business. And he sees all the bits and pieces of who you are and he's not going, oh, I'm gonna scrap all this stuff and we're gonna start over. Like he promised us you know, with the, the ark and, and um, with um, with Noah, like he wasn't going to scrap the world and start over again. He's like, I'm going to take the bits and pieces that are there and I'm going to work with that. And that takes a little bit more time. And this is kind of like where I'm at as I've been working through just like all this like grief and this pain and this struggle over the past couple months is thinking about, well, what does it mean for me to actively trust God? Like this idea of allegiance, this idea of faith. And I recognize, and this kind of sucks, like, I, don't, I, don't, I will not know the difference between whether or not I'm actually act, like trusting God actively or if I'm just using religious words as an escape from my own life until I'm act, already through the difficult season, right? Like we tell each other this all the time. Like, you've got to trust God. You've got to lay down your burdens and you've got to come to him. Like, yeah, it's true. I'm not going to know if I actually did that until I'm already through it. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep showing up. And I'm gonna continue practicing that posture of humility, of coming to the Lord and saying, I am in need of you until I get through a difficult season. And I'm gonna trust that over time, God will show me what it is that he's been doing when I could not see it. And I love that idea that Jesus knew where he came from and he knew where he was going, and that gave him permission in that moment to fully trust God. And when you and I, when we know where we came from and we know where we're going, it, it helps ground us in this moment to trust what God is doing in us. And so our practice today, we kind of have two practices. We're going to uh, practice uh, the prayer of confession, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to try it in this space. We haven't, we haven't done it here yet, so it's all an experiment right now. And I think what I've recognized as a good Anglican over you know, my 37 years of existence is like, Having the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, whatever whatever you call it, as kind of central to our practice, like our approaching God, speaks so many of these things back to us. So us coming to the table of the Lord uh, to receive the body and blood of Jesus is an act of humility. It's us coming to the table and not going, Jesus, it's time for me to prove to you how awesome I am and, and, and how many things that I did for you this week much I've worked on my spiritual gifts, and I did that Bible study, and I listened to those podcasts, and I helped this homeless person. Like, we don't come to the table and prove why we get a seat at the table, even though the rest of the world, like, that's so often what we're told to do. No, we come open-handed and go, I'm in need of you. And we receive the gifts, the body and blood of Jesus. We receive it as a gift that can only come through watching the humility of Jesus save the world. And so the Eucharist reminds us of God's humility. that that is central to who God really is. And the Eucharist tells us the truth about who we are. We are his children in whom he is well pleased. He is especially fond of us. And we're broken. And we're in process. And we're capable of terrible evil. His goodness and so I want to invite you to uh, actually yeah go ahead stand we're going to pray this prayer together it's a very old prayer a prayer of confession and what I love about this prayer is it kind of covers the gamut even when we say by what we have done and what we have left undone you got it all <laughs> thought word deed boom nailed it like it's all there didn't love God very well, we didn't love one another, it covers it all, but what we're going to do is we're going to recite this prayer together, and then I'm going to give you some time to kind of confess what's on your heart. What are you carrying? What are the, what are the burdens? What are the, what are the sins that you recognize in yourself, the brokenness, the coping mechanisms, the addictions, the failures, all that stuff that you're trying to like hide behind your capability? What if you just like offered that to the Lord? And I'm just going to leave that moment. And then I'm going to pray over you and I'm going to invite you to the table and I'll give the instructions for that. But just take this time to really allow the Spirit of God to shine His light of truth on your heart and to show you whatever He sees there. All of your your greatest, uh, most beautiful gifts to the world and all of your deficiencies and your brokenness and to trust He's not afraid of that stuff. So you don't need to be either. So let's pray together and I'll give you a moment to just... Walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So just take a moment and just confess to the Lord anything that you're holding on to. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.